Welcome to International Tax Bites, a podcast about concepts and issues in international taxation. Today, I will not be speaking to my podcast partner, Harriet Brown, who couldn't make our recording due to diary commitments. Instead, I'll be talking to Leonard Wagenar about the developments and issues surrounding Pillar 2. What is it? Where is it going? So welcome to uh, the first episode of the latest series, Series 6 of International Tax Bites. We have something completely different today in that Harriet, who was timetabled to uh, be on this podcast, cannot make it because she is otherwise busy being an international tax barrister. Um, So you've just got me. Uh, But we do have a guest uh, today, and his name is Leonard Wagenar. He is uh, an international tax director, in non-transactional tax director, my apologies. He was CEO of Interim Tax Solutions and was Vice President Global Tax with SoftBank Investment Advisors um, all, all that time ago during the pandemic. And Leonard is here to talk to us today about Pillar 2, which is the hottest topic in international taxation. What is it? Will it be implemented? And uh, frankly, what is going on? Uh, because it is a little bit uh, chaotic. So, Leonard, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, and hopefully you can shed some light on on Pillar 2 for us. Would you like to just give us a very simple yeah. explanation of what Pillar 2 is? Yeah, of course. And and it goes without saying that everything I, I say today is my personal view only and doesn't reflect on anyone I ever worked for or work for today. Um, so Pillar 2 is a um, global minimum tax which aims to ensure that profits anywhere in the world will always be taxed at at least 15%. It's been in the work for quite a few years. It's really started as an idea uh, in 2019. And at the time, it didn't really seem like it had much chance of succeeding. But it's um, it grew from there. And for a while, it kept on winning every political battle and overcoming every political obstacle that was in the way, um, which reached its pinnacle achievement in October last year, 2021, where 137 countries signed a statement saying they were going to go ahead with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 um, and implement this. I should say that statement said it gave countries the ability to implement Pillar 2. It didn't force anyone to implement Pillar 2, and it was still left up to the countries themselves whether they would actually implement it. But they did agree that if they were going to implement a global minimum tax, they would follow the model rules. The model rules came out a few months later in December 2021. And ever since then, uh, there's a lot of technical discussions a lot of technical analysis and a lot of politics that has come into play around whether these rules should actually like enter into force and in which countries. So that's the, the, the very broad overview in terms of the mechanics. So in terms of the mechanics of the rules, Pillar 2 is actually a combination of four different sets of rules. There's 
the there is the subject to tax rules, which is meant to help developing countries. And that means that they are allowed to levy withholding tax on payments that are not taxed at 9%. Because of the way that that subject to tax rule is designed, it is expected that it will not come into play a lot of times. And I think most people working in the international tax environment kind of ignore subject to tax rule because it, it is really just in very big corner cases where it could potentially apply. Okay. The real bulk the real bulk of the rules lies with the other three rules and they are inter interchange they are they're locked in together. They are the domestic minimum tax, the income inclusion rule and UTPR. These are three different taxes. All of them calculate the global minimum tax in the same way. The only difference between these three rules is who gets to collect the tax if the effective tax rate is below 15% for a given territory. Okay. So under the domestic minimum tax, it is the country itself, the low tax country itself, that collects the shortfall in tax and adds up tax to the existing amount up to the point where you're no longer considered low tax. So that's generally 15%, but there are some quirks with that. So that's almost like um, a valve that comes on and off if 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 there's not going to be 15%. If you are below 15%, then the, the idea is that the minimum tax is going to kick in somewhere. Yeah. The first, the first country, the country who, get, who gets first dips on it, so to speak, is the country itself so they can introduce a domestic tax that uh, lifts up the your your tax level to 15 percent effectively um, so that the the rest of the rules don't need to apply because if you have domestic minimum tax and it's it's working well in a country then we don't need to talk about the other two bits income inclusion rules utpr because income inclusion rule and utpr only apply if there is no domestic minimum tax lifting okay. the tax rate up to 15%. So every country in the world implements domestic minimum tax, then that's the end of the story. Then theoretically, we will not have to worry about these other two taxes because everything gets dealt with at a local level. Now, the reality is, of course, not, not all countries are going to implement domestic minimum tax. So in that case, you have... The second step, which is the income inclusion rule, which tries to lift, uh, to levy the 15% top-up tax at the level of the ultimate parent entity of the group. So if you have a large multinational that's that's listed, that's usually the place where, where the top company is, is established, the, the actual listed entity, and that country could then lift, could then levy the minimum tax that country doesn't minim levy the minimum tax. You could theoretically go down the chain to a level where there is, where there is an income inclusion rule, and they could could instead le levy the minimum tax, um, and that that's how the income inclusion rules pick pick that up. Now, if nobody le levies the tax on the income inclusion rule, then you get finally to UTPR. UTPR allows all other countries in the world to levy the minimum tax and divides that up amongst all UTPR implementing countries. So that means that if you have a small subsidiary in a country that, that's implementing, 
for instance, France or Germany, who are likely to implement as things stand, um, they could collect the full amount of top-up tax due for low tax profits anywhere in the group, anywhere in the world, even if it has no connection to the operations in Germany or France. Okay. So the domestic top-up tax is, like you said, it's the first, the first, um, the first filter. Are are you paying fifteen percent in the country where the where the profits being made? Um, and then the IIR, IIR, the income in, income inclusion rule, um, is taxed on the parent, and it looks down through the group and says is is fifteen percent being charged. And then the UTPR is is a is a fallback position, which, like you said, exp- allows any any country where any group member is to to basically tax the whole group, right? Correct, correct. You could tax any any operations in the world, and um, the UTPR is a really radical move in the in in the design of the Pillar Two rules, and that's kind of a backstop that aims to collect tax that's not been taxed elsewhere. And it's a very controversial move. There's a lot of technical discussion right now whether it breaches principles of international law. And there are some arguments as well whether it would break tax treaties. But fundamentally, what they're trying to do is to tax, indeed, profits anywhere in the world. So you could indeed have, let's say, a U.S. multinational that operates everywhere in the world and has small offices in some European countries that have implemented. Um, But actually, the profits that they end up taxing taxing have have no relation to that there are profits somewhere in asia or 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 in offshore locations or that it's it's all possible but it's some people have described utpr as being the policeman where a country is stepping in and say you have to pay us this tax because your group is doing some low tax activity somewhere in the world and even though it has no relation to our operations that you have in our country we want to tax that i mean that like you said that's a very radical step isn't it um it is it is and it permits the it permits the powerful countries to impose essentially impose their will on on every country in the world right correct and the it it is for this to work like if nobody implements this um, the only countries that can afford to be first movers are countries that are big enough so that the, they don't suffer too much of a decline in business investment just because they have a sort of a UTPR charge, which is kind of like the gateway, the cost of doing business, of having any operations in these countries. But once you have one country that's large enough or several countries that are large enough, the theory is that for other countries to join that group, that there's no real business cost to that because because everybody's doing it. So yeah, if if a U.S. multinational is already paying UTPR in Germany and France, the fact that Malaysia joins in and also gets a cut of the UTPR and UTPR gets sliced up differently doesn't matter because it's not an an additional tax cost for the U.S. multinational, its UTPR charge is going to stay the same. It's just going to change where they're paying the UTPR. So from that perspective, the design is such that small countries, once there is critical mass, small countries can easily piggyback 
without hurting business investment. Yeah. So again, just to just to cover the three rules. I mean, the 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 the, the domestic top up tax is really just a, 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 a an increase in the domestic tax rate. Obviously, we need to. We just do need to flag, though, don't we, that these rules only apply to companies that turn over more than seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Correct. Yes. So um, the domestic or will only apply. The domestic top up tax is an base, essentially an increase in, uh, in in domestic tax rate for those companies that qualify. The IIR looks and feels a lot like um, a CFC rule. Correct. Um, and there was talk of. So the, the funny thing is about the IRR, it's called an income inclusion rule, which suggests it's like a CFC rule and it will be part of the general income, but it's not. It is a standalone tax. So okay. it is. it operates a lot like a CFC rule, but it differs from CFC in the sense that you pay it completely separate to your, your local taxes. So you could have a situation where you're loss making and you're at the same time have an IRR charge and you cannot offset the two. Right. Okay. So that's um, that's that's essentially just um, a punishment in some ways, then, isn't it, <laughs> for, for for having companies in 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 low tax countries? And and yeah. the U yeah. and the, the UTPR have, is all, is almost have... like um, I mean, if you wanted to stretch for for what it looks like, it's like a a conceptual withholding tax with a punch in the face attached to it. There isn't really any equivalent to what UTPR is doing. And that's why there is a lot of debate on UTPR on how it works. Some have considered it as a, some sort of an excise tax or sort of gateway tax saying that if you want to do business in our country, you have to accept that you're going to pay UTPR. Um, but there is not really any sort of equivalent to a UTPR. Conceptually, originally, the UTPR was designed to be similar to the US BEAT system, where mm -hmm. deduction of payments gets denied. That was in the October 2021 statement. But when the actual rules came out, the, it moved beyond that and it became a completely separate uh, standalone tax. Um, and and it's it's not no longer tied to any deduction of payments. It is just an allocation of a of the top-up tax that was already determined under the general Pillar 2 framework. Okay. So th this is obviously, I mean, and anybody who's listening to this who understands tax knows that this is clearly very controversial. Without even knowing there's a controversy, you need to know, you, you would spot that this would be controversial because it is such a, a change in the international taxation system. Um, you could describe it as... Um, as the G20, because the G20 ultimately originate this, don't they? Because they instructed the OECD to do something. The OECD came back with with these proposals. So it could it could be described as the G20 attempting to assert itself over the entire global economy. Um, or you could view it as an anti-avoidance rule. That's not for us to, to take the position, but it does seem that... Um, Almost like, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. So countries develop at different rates and they have different requirements for tax. Um, small jurisdictions that don't have armies and navies don't need as much tax as large jurisdictions. So why wouldn't their rate be lower? But this seems to be, an imp maybe it's not an imposition, but you would raise your tax rate to make sure nobody else took the tax. 
Um, That's the design. Like the idea is like if you start from U to PR, you would say, okay, if U to PR applies and a group is already subject to U to PR, it doesn't matter if other countries implement U to PR. So it stimulates them to Im implement U to PR. Then if U to PR applies, the ultimate parent country might as well implement IRR because it's not going to be an incremental tax. It's just going to mean that the tax get paid in the, the parents country rather than in all these U2PR countries. And if you already have U2PR or IRR, it stimulates countries to introduce their domestic top-up tax because it's not going to incrementally increase the, the tax for the group groups that, that are subject to Pillar 2. Uh, but you might you do get revenue from it if you do. Yeah, why implement. why would Jersey want France to take its tax? That's essentially correct. Correct, and the the whole plan of this is they this was called the diabolical machinery by by one observer. It is a design that means to push this like dominoes uh, stones so that ultimately the tax rates everywhere get raised to 15%. Some of the key countries that have been pushing for this, like Germany, are very aware of this. And they, they are aware that if this all comes to pass, they probably won't get as much direct tax revenue from, from this new tax. But they say it will reduce tax competition and there will be an indirect benefit from that. And it will be an indirect benefit that planning structures no longer have the same same benefits as they have today. Yeah. I mean, if you were cynical, you would say countries that aren't very good at tax competition want to stop tax competition happening, and this does it. Um, but again, that's not for us to say. So um, the, 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 this is very controversial, and um, the Americans, who are very pro- um the world implementing have been slightly um reticent in implementing in their own right haven't they the american position is very odd way back when trump was still president they tried to the, the american administration tried to push back on all of this and try to delay the fur and and try to um fight every corner on this then when the Biden administration came in, they made a sort of a, a a sort of turn on this, where they saw a potential to meet certain domestic American policy objectives in implementing this, as long as they could implement it within the framework of their guilty rules. Guilty is not a pillar two tax. I think that's pretty clear. But the Americans thought that if they made some changes to guilty, it could be respected as equivalent to Pillar 2, which would be a good outcome from the U.S. It means that U.S. groups are not going to be subject to Pillar 2 obligations worldwide, or not that much at least. Um, and they, this was part of the Build Back Better Act, which was floated and around December 2021. It got delayed and it got delayed quite a few times until finally the Inflation Reduction Act came to pass which cut out this specific reform of the guilty provisions. So although the U.S. administration was very much intending to implement its own version of Pillar 2, in the end, it didn't make the finish line. 
And it is very unlikely to be revised in the next two years, regardless of the outcome of the midterm elections, which the time of recording is not yet known. But because of that context, they, they are now in a very odd position where they pushed for something and then didn't implement it themselves. The Republicans... What a surprise. It's not like the Americans have got formed with this. Yeah, um, the Republicans are very much opposed to all of this. And if if the, the Republicans are likely to hold a significant influence over lawmaking, even if they don't get full control, um, and the Republicans are not going to play ball on this, and they are may even be pushing for the US to aggressively push back on Pillar 2 in other countries. But the Biden administration can't really push back on, on something that they themselves agree to. So it's it's going to be a very interesting dynamics to see what the U.S. Uh, response to Pillar 2 in other countries is going to be. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think I read, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that um, we'll come on to talk about the EU in a second, but um, when Hungary took its stand, the Americans turned off the Hungarian DTT with some sort of noise that it was around their position around Pillar 2. Um, so it seems does seem odd that they're not implementing yeah. and then yeah, waving there a was, stick at other people who don't want to implement. It was very odd. The, there was a period where the EU was trying to implement this as a block and Yellen, the, the, the finance minister, went to several European countries to push them to implement something that, that the US itself struggled to implement, which was already a very old position. Uh, the situation with Hungary, there, there are there, there are other reasons and other problems with that treaty. Um, that, but it's it seems likely, or at least there's a lot of speculation, that the pillar two position was a big part of this. That the the US didn't like that Hungary had effectively stalled the whole pillar two implementation, and therefore they decided to twist the arm of Hungary on a, a semi-related tax file. Yeah, it does seem odd, doesn't it? I mean, I think it's certainly... Um, I do have some contact with some people who are on the edges of this. Um, I think it certainly um, may not have been the primary mover, but it was part of the mood. And they were less, they were less um, keen to resolve issues if Hungary... Was behave was recalcitrant. Um, about yeah, what they it's it's been a very interesting past two years because effectively this has turned from. If you compare conventional tax policy as three dimensional chess, we've kind of moved to like ten dimensional chess, where all politics in all countries are starting to get related, and and every move in every country is going to have some effect everywhere in the world on the pillar two chances. I mean, even things like uh, the UAE's introduction of corporation tax, which was announced as getting ready for pillar two, but they went with 9%, which seems like it's more related to the, the subject to tax rules than it is to, to the 15% minimum rate. Um, so it, the, yeah, you're right. There's lots of moving parts in every country. So we, but there's well, always local factors as well. Like the UAE has been mulling over an introduction of corporate tax for, for more than a decade. 
Now, Pillar 2 may have brought some of that forward and may have shaped some of that, but it is it would be untrue to say that that's purely a reaction to Pillar 2. Mm. So there's always local dynamics that play into domestic tax policy decisions, and that like then it... gets played out on a larger scale, on a global level. So that's why I say I compare it to 10-dimensional chess. Everything gets gets wrapped in and is somehow related to this big thing that is Pillar 2. Yeah, it does feel, doesn't it, like Pillar 2 is is in in some senses being used as cover for tax rises that are that are that are being driven more by COVID borrowing than Pillar 2 itself. But um so we talked about the Americans and they're doing their thing. Um but the EU we've touched on, the EU normally implements things like this by way of a directive which mandates all member states to to implement in a unified way. And it did that with CRS and DAC6 and um, all, all, all that other good stuff. Um, so what's happening in the The Hungarians, I think, what, two months ago, three months ago, vetoed the directive. There is a lot more to the story, as usual. So th- there is no requirement for this to be implemented in a directive. But that was also the case for the BEPS initiatives. And the BEPS initiatives were mostly implemented through a directive. The European Commission very much wanted this to be a directive, one, to ensure consistency, but two, because it also fitted some of the European Commission's policy objectives, particularly the BFIT agenda, which would harmonize corporate taxes to a large extent in the EU. So they were very much pushing for it. There were obviously some European countries who were very much in favor of Pillar 2 who wanted to push this. Through a combination of lots of political factors, this directive was vetoed first by Poland on two occasions and then in the end by Hungary. And after that, we broke down, we broke for summer and there was not going to be another ECOFIN meeting. The EU presidency changed as well. France got very frustrated with the process. The Hungarian position wasn't moving. They were still going to veto it every time it came up. So then Germany became the first country to say, if this is not implemented at EU level, we're going to do it ourselves. France quickly followed suit. And in the end, five EU countries came together and agreed. It's actually the five largest EU countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Netherlands. They all said, we're going to implement regardless. We would like to do it at EU level. If we can't do it EU-wide, we could do it through something called enhanced cooperation. But if that fails, we're just going to do it by ourselves. So they and need how many situation... more member states for enhanced cooperation? Is it eight altogether? They need nine. So nine. they need four more. Belgium has said they are open to enhanced cooperation, but it appears they're not open to unilateral implementation. So arguably they have six, but they need three more. And so far countries are not not moving and, and not signing up for this so it seems at the moment it seems difficult to get to nine countries so at the moment it seems quite possible that we are just going to have unilateral implementation in those five countries in the eu and then of course possibly also in other areas of the world uh, there are countries who are supportive of this like japan korea malaysia Australia potentially, UK potentially. Where's um, so UK? Just to, because obviously I'm I'm from the UK originally. UK has published its draft legislation, but it's not. I mean, 
from what I saw of it, it didn't look like it was a fully finished job, like it had been brought out um, to make a show of publishing draft legislation rather than actually um, finishing the task. Um, I think Again, in UK, there's a lot of local factors uh, attached to it. It seems unlikely that the UK really wanted to be first mover on this. But if there are enough other countries moving, then the UK might just go ahead with it, especially given budgetary pressures. They might, might yeah. feel right now that it might be a good idea to implement something as long as they're not the first mover. What's the um, current figures that the OECD think that Pillar 2 will raise globally? I think I saw a figure of $150 billion at one point. I haven't kept too close track of the figures. They change a lot, and they change a lot depending on the methodology. It's the the thing is with these figures. They there's one thing on the headline number. The second thing that is impossible to answer is who's going to actually collect the tax. All figures are even the best figures are based on static positions, which assume that companies are not going to react to this at all, are not going to change their tax strategies which is obviously wrong. We're going to expect country companies to do things differently than they did before. And on top of that, a lot of local com com countries may step in and collect the minimum domestic minimum tax. Yeah. And if they collect the domestic minimum tax, all this supposed additional revenue goes to countries that a lot, a lot of commentators consider tax havens. Yeah, so I'm sure um, Caribbean islands will have new new municipal swimming pools and things like that if this goes through um the so if we do take the 150 billion figure as as something approximate then that basically in in, in global terms that's not a huge amount is it i mean it, i think it's about the same as the vat take in the uk yeah you, you have to put i think that is right we're doing a lot a lot of change quite fundamental change and i think this is people who are very deep into this material including myself most of them will say they get the policy rationale they get why certain countries want to do this but they question whether the complexity of these rules is really worth the policy objectives yes yeah, so there's obviously been a lot of movement in in recent years hasn't there and, and campaigning around tax havens and um, dodgy and in inverted commas um, tax structuring and multinationals abusing the system. So, is do you think this is as much something needs to be done as it is actually um, an effective method of raising cash to to solve the uh, the fiscal problems of of countries? Is it for show? I think it's difficult to separate separate the two in, in a lot of a lot of cases as always and you alluding to the politician's fallacy which is something must be done this is something we must do this which is is obviously wrong because some things will make problems worse don't think pillar two will necessarily make problems worse unless you're in a compliance department of a large multinational and it definitely makes things worse but is is it just for show i don't think so but it, it is useful to, to remember that some of the there's a lot of statements coming out in defense of Pillar 2 from organizations that support it, 
but not all of the policy objectives have equal weight. One of the things that keeps coming up is the position of developing countries and both opponents and supporters of Pillar 2 keep pointing to developing countries saying either it's too complex for them, they will not have any way to compete anymore, they need to be able to do tax competition, whereas supporters say it can really help them because they're going to get additional revenue. But the reality is neither the supporters or the opponents have put developing countries central to their case. They're kind of being dragged along for the ride. Their inputs that they give into the process um, is not as extensive as as the rich and powerful countries. So for them, this kind of happens to them. There are positive angles to it and then there are negative angles to it. The the real drivers of this is that a, a... there are a few countries who are very much in favor of this because they feel like tax competition really hurts them um, because they they are losing they're, they're losing certain types of businesses to smaller open economies and they and they want to put a stop to that tax of aggressive tax avoidance abusive tax avoidance is wrong um, and and tax evasion is clearly wrong. It's criminal. Um, but is this almost um, an exercise in the larger countries flexing their muscles and telling the world that it must do what they say? I think when when it was first released, the Chinese released, a, and I don't want to trumpet the Chinese in, in, in any way or trumpet anybody, but they released a, a, a statement that said 20 countries can't decide what the whole word, world does. It does feel a little bit like that. Like this is an exercise in power politics rather than... There is a lot of power politics. But to be fair, if you want to implement a fundamental change of the way international tax works, you're gonna you're not going to do it by just having a reasonable argument-based discussion. At some point, politics are going to play into it. So on, in the end, well, we should judge Pillar 2 on its effects and... Um, not not necessarily on its intentions and certainly not just on the lofty statements that accompany it uh, because there is more, more to it than that. In its effects, it's, it introduces a lot of complexity. It does have the potential to make certain forms of uh, tax planning no longer economically beneficial. And it does have the potential to limit tax competition. Now, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing depends on your perspective. Well, Leonard, I think um, that it's clear that this is a complex... Oh, one last question. One question. One question. What do you think the chances of a global implementation are, an effective global implementation? I'm not saying every country in the world, but, um, you know, a critical mass of countries implementing... And I suppose you would break it up between the three rules, right? Is there any obligation, sorry, is there any obligation to implement all three, top-up tax, IIR, and UTPR? No. Can you pick and choose which ones you implement? You can pick and choose. The only obligation is that if you do implement something, you are supposed to follow the, the model rules. In terms of chances of the whole projects, it got a lot better over the last few months. And and now recently, it's it's become clear that the European countries are intending to do not just IRR, but also UTPR, which significantly increases the chances of getting critical mass. Making predictions on an area like this, which seems to change so rapidly, is a very dangerous job. But 
it seems now, right now, it seems like the most likely outcome is that European countries are going to move forward. The, the five European countries, quite likely there will be support also from some Asian countries, particularly Japan, Korea, Malaysia, uh, potentially Australia, and potentially the UK. And then the combination of those countries, if they stick to their guns and if the US doesn't push back too hard, they have a very good chance of actually pulling this off. And you could totally see a world where if this has been in place for a few years, other countries will slowly join in because they realize this revenue is getting collected anyway. Why don't we get a share of it by implementing our own pillar two equivalent? And once that ball starts rolling, then you get to a situation where maybe a few years down the line, you have pillar two in so many countries that it is a machinery that becomes impossible to stop. Yeah. The, U, the US always likes to do things a little bit differently on tax, as we're all aware. So it, it remains to be seen whether the US is going to do something about it. And um, that is something that I don't think anyone will dare to predict. But the we chances could have a of position, success... we, if France implements UTPR, not just France, but anybody in the EU implements UTPR, and then I don't know, Facebook is using using something that's that gives it a less than 15% rate. So Facebook will be t- taxed by France. I mean, I'm using France and Facebook as examples. The US couldn't, you... couldn't, couldn't allow that to happen, could it? Well, right now it's it's difficult for the US to push back on, on that sort of outcome. But I think we have to remember, like the UTPR is, is going to come into place a year later. So it would come into place in 2025. By that time, the U.S. political landscape will have changed dramatically in the sense that there will have been another presidential election. The Senate and the Congress composition may be completely different. So you could either have the U.S. aggressively pushing back on it or the U.S. aggressively pushing its domestic reform agenda and make U.S. pillar two compliance. Theoretically, you could have a situation where the U.S. stands on the sign line, whether through polarization, unable to move, or whether by design. But that is not a very satisfactory outcome for U.S. multinationals. So if UTPR becomes widely adopted, it would kind of force the U.S. to take a stand on this. And right now, they kind of kick that decision into the long grass. Yeah. To sort of see what happens and which way the wind's blowing, and then and let their own internal political cycle take its take its course. Um, so I think we've come to a conclusion, haven't we? That it's all very confused, but more likely than not, I would say that's fair in everyday speech. More likely than not, in terms of opinion terms, I don't think anyone will dare a prediction. But I would right now think the chances of success to a to a and and then it depends on what you see as success, but the chance of success indeed look bigger than fifty percent at the moment. Okay, all right. So, um, Leonard, thank you very much for giving us your explanation um, for for talking about this highly complex topic. It's really appreciated taking time out of your day to talk to us. I'm very sorry, Harriet couldn't be here. I hope that what we've talked about has 
explained the basic principles and the political landscape around it and the, the chances of uh, of implementation around pillar two uh you you you've spoken very well and i would advise anybody who's in tax to follow follow leonard on linkedin his posts on linkedin and on twitter are absolutely excellent very erudite and sensible and thought through when he and he speaks very well um you should write a lot leonard because you make sense a lot so um thank you very thank much you. for coming this is obviously just a conversation to, between two people talking about tax and no substitute for advice uh, thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you soon goodbye bye